Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, contemplates, and sometimes criticizes current classic and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night. Uh, I should point out that next week uh, I'll give you a little preview of coming attractions because we always love previews of coming attractions. Next week, uh, I have all Gene Harmetz talking about The Wizard of Oz, which will be a lot of fun. But tonight, it is my pleasure to welcome my guest, author, film historian, critic, host, and podcaster, Leonard Malton, most likely America's most prolific supporter of classic films. Hello, Leonard. Hello there. How are you? I'm great. I, I, I'm just thrilled to have you. Uh, you know, if you want to talk about architecture in the past, you looked up Frank Lloyd Wright. If you wanted to talk about the undersea, you contacted Jacques Cousteau. But if you're going to talk classic films, how can you not talk to Leonard Malton? Well, flattery will get you everywhere, Steve, but you probably know that already. Uh, <laughs> and and no, one, no one really needs to know how long we know each other. No, exactly, exactly. It was, uh, it was a while ago. But I have to tell the audience that Leonard wrote me my very first fan letter. I'd never received a fan letter in my life. I, I was a fledgling correspondent for Cinefantastique magazine, one of the great film magazines. And I wrote a retrospective article. It took me six months to compile it on the day the earth stood still. And you wrote me a letter. And I, I still have it. And uh, I... I warmly appreciate that. I think early in our careers, when anybody reads our writing and says something nice, it's a terrific boon. Well, I always found it so. Uh, you know, I still and and it's still true today. I mean, I, I I crave compliments as much as the next guy. And uh, you know, if you do what you do because you love it, and that's true of both of us, uh, then a compliment has real meaning. Sure, sure. I mean, early on, um, I mean, you, you and I have very parallel things because you studied journalism at New York University. I was a writer for the UCLA Daily Bruin. We were both starting to write magazine articles uh, about the film industry. Um, you know, I was going to ask you, uh, when you were starting to cover film, did you have anybody mentoring you? Was there anybody that you respected as a film historian that was covering similar ground? Oh, well, my hero was and remains William K. Everson, uh, a name that won't be familiar to everybody, but will be to a certain slice of, <laughs> of, uh, of film buffs and film students. He taught at NYU for, for many, many years. And um, he ran a film, a sort of a secret handshake film society in Manhattan. And I describe it as that because the, the schedule was not printed anywhere because he often showed films uh, without permission, a rare prints of films that even the studios didn't know they owned. And uh, so it was all kind of uh, word of mouth, literally word of mouth. So if you knew about the, the, the screenings, 
and you had his approval, you could go. And uh, what were the odds of finding out for a 14 year old kid? But I, I went to Manhattan for the day. I lived in the suburbs in, in Teaneck, New Jersey. I went to the city for a day with, a, with my best friend and we went to Entertainment Films, a little eight millimeter home movie company. And Bill was sitting there. Now, he's, he had already written several books. He wrote a wonderful book called The Bad Guys. Uh, he wrote a, a history of the Western. He, he ghost wrote Joe Franklin's Classics of the Silent Screen, which is an excellent book. Uh, and Joe, who I love dearly, didn't write a word of it. And Bill wrote <laughs> every word of it. Uh, but to me, he was not at his zenith writing those books. He was at his best introducing films, uh, first at this secret society called the Theater Huff Society after one of his mentors. And then uh, more publicly at the New School. Uh, the New School for Social Research had a 500 seat auditorium and he started showing double features there every Friday night and built a, a real uh, audience, a constituency. And there are so many films and filmmakers and actors that I would know nothing about if it, not, if it had not been for Bill introducing me, uh, either literally or figuratively. He was also the most generous man. You could, <laughs> this is not made up. <laughs> a guy knocked on his apartment door one night and said, uh, uh, Mr. Everson, I, I've always wanted to see Lost Horizon and uh, I, I've never had an opportunity and I wonder if you'd be willing to show it to me. Well, come on in, come on in. <laughs> he invites this guy into his apartment and threads up his print and shows him Lost Horizon. <laughs> he was just he, the, the the phrase generous to a fault would apply to Bill, but except it was never a fault. He he was so giving and um and so knowledgeable. And uh so I revere him. You um did you know early on the direction you wanted to take your life? Were you one of these people who early on knew they were gonna follow film? Um I, you know, as I've written my sort of memoir now, a book called Starstruck, people are asking me this kind of retrospective question. And the truth is, I never thought ahead about anything. All I knew was this is what I love to do. I started publishing my own magazine right. uh, when I was 13 and uh, kept doing that for a good number of years and then stumbled into some pots of gold, good fortune. Uh, got to write my first book at uh, 17. And, uh, but when I was in high school, suffering through advanced math, cause I kept, cause I kept placing it to advanced math, but then I flunked every, every test. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I knew I was gonna be writing. I knew I was gonna have something to do with film. Did I think about a career? And I think in any kind of practical terms about, you know, how my life would, would take shape. No, not a clue. 
not a clue. I just, I guess, had a, uh, a belief or a faith or whatever you want to call it, that uh, somehow things would work out the way I, I wanted them to work out. Well, I think you were in a, in a unique time. I think that, um, I think you and I have expressed this, that there is a certain concern today <clears throat> that the interest in the classics is being, is, is being um, well, being touted by a very few select people who are doing their best to keep everything alive. And you particularly, with your love of silent film, are very unique. Uh, and of course, your, your interest extends to animation and uh, mainstream films, and you're also a critic. Uh, you do it all. Let me ask you a question, which certainly is, a, uh, we're all thinking about these days, the, 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 the fate of the movie business, which is being discussed a lot these days. You know, the streaming universe has kind of taken over, and a lot of people over the age of 40 are not going to the movies. Uh, the kids are still going to see the Marvel films. Uh, Put your Creskin uh, hat on or whatever you call that thing that Johnny Carson used to wear on his head. And tell me what you think will be uh, the future of movies in the next 30 to 40 years, uh, particularly when it comes to classics. If I had a really good answer for that, I could probably make a lot of money as a consultant for investors, but uh, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I refuse to believe that movie theaters will disappear. I just will not countenance that prediction. Uh, I think they're going to have a tough time surviving because you've got to pay rent and maintenance on a piece of real estate 52 weeks a year and Marvel movies cannot fill up... <laughs> 52 weeks uh, and, and they've got to do something to you know keep keep the uh, the lights uh, the light bill uh, you know from being uh, you know foreclosed uh, I don't know how it's going to happen streaming obviously is here to stay and uh, and yet there are people not a majority but there are people who still, collect physical media. Do you know that Netflix still makes $200 million a year servicing DVD customers? I find that amazing. Uh, you know, and, and that's, and that's uh, having had that number gone down in the last few years, it used to be 400 million a year. <laughs> uh, only, a, only a company as large as Netflix would consider this an asterisk in their annual report. You know, anyone else who's making $200 million a year in a business like that would be ecstatic. Uh, there are people who still, you know, have the curiosity and the level of interest to, to see a whole series of movies. If they like one, let's look at all of them. Or if they see a new movie, let's look at the original. Uh, and, and in, some play, in some cases, they, they care enough that they want to have a library of them. This is, this is rare, I know. It's not typical. It's not usual. But, uh, of course, you and I grew up at a different time. Books, to me, are sacred. 
you know, I, I love books. I love reading. I love learning new things, even new things about old movies. Uh, one of the reasons I, I admire the Criterion Collection so much is that they continue to release four to five films a month. I don't know how they do this. And uh, some newer titles, but largely what sort of are, are genuinely and broadly accepted as classics. And when they put out All About Eve, great, great movie, they printed the original short story, a magazine short story that inspired Joe Mankiewicz's script. I'd never read that story. And they had an interview with the real life woman who inspired the author of that story to write it. Oh, wow, wow. I mean, you know, so how would I expect to learn something or a lot of things brand new about a movie that I've admired since I was a teenager. And yet I did. And that's one of the things that Criterion does so well is they, they dig deep and they find uh, people who are still associated with the film. They find older interviews with those people. They find source material. And uh, to me, that means uh, there's still things to discover. And that makes it fresh and new to me. It's not, it's not digging through the ruins. No, absolutely. And uh, uh, they are gatekeepers that are keeping those gates open. And yep. we need those. Uh, um, it's interesting about books. Uh, I grew up respecting books. Um, I remember the very first film book I ever purchased was part of a series of film books this one was called All Talking, All Singing, All Dancing. It was one of those collections of photographs and information on, on a lot of the musicals. By the late, great John Springer. There you go. There you go. And I remember riding my bike in high school up to Larry Edmonds, which was kind of like a, a, you know, a revelation to a film lover to see a bookstore entirely devoted to films. That's where I found my first copy of Cine Fantastique bought my first film still. But sooner, soon, soon after that, I found your first, one of your first books, it may have been your first book, where you had this literally very thick volume. Every movie that you could think of was in that book. It was your, your Leonard Maltin's early movie guide, which of course you've done a million times since. Tell me how you came about doing such a legendary book. Well, I was publishing a fanzine, as we called them in those days, called Film Fan Monthly. Uh, I discovered it. I discovered it uh, because of Forrest J. Ackerman, uh, who edited and published a legendary magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland. And this is the magazine that you could buy, and most of us did buy, uh, wherever you got your comic books or Mad Magazine. It's a mainstream publication and it cost more than a comic book. It cost like 35 cents. Uh, but in the pages of this magazine were great photo features and, and articles about Lon Chaney and Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and uh, the great makeup artist Jack Pierce 
and uh, it opened worlds to uh, all of uh, all the people I know of my generation, of my baby boom generation, wound up uh, caring about this stuff. Steven Spielberg read Famous Monsters. Stephen King read Famous Monsters. The list is long. Uh, well, one, one issue, the editor decided to promote fanzines. And he did a write-up on five leading fanzines. One was a science fiction oriented fanzine. One was a Tarzan oriented fanzine. And then two were for home movie collectors, people who collected prints of films, classic films on eight millimeter and 16 millimeter. And one of them was called the eight millimeter collector. And it was published in Indiana, Pennsylvania, Jimmy Stewart's hometown. And the other was called Film Fan Monthly. It was published in Vancouver, Canada. So I wrote to the editors of both of those publications and sent them each an article on spec, as they say. Uh, I didn't know that term then, but that means uh, unsolicited. Uh, they received in their mailbox an article with my byline. And uh, they both published the articles. Now, there was no money involved because this was a labor of love for, for everybody. Uh, they were not making uh, uh, probably 10 cents on, on these things. Uh, the guy who published the 8mm Collector in Indiana PA was a furniture dealer who loved silent films. And he couldn't find anybody else in Indiana PA who did. So he started this magazine as a means of communicating with uh, like-minded people. And it worked. And the fellow in Vancouver um, was a horse racing fan who uh, was, he was nine. I said, I'm 13. He said, that's okay, I'm 19. <laughs> I told them both how old I was after they accepted the articles and neither one cared. It didn't matter to them at all. So I contributed to Film Fan Monthly for two years while publishing my mimeographed magazine and then at the end of two years, Daryl Davey, the, the, the fellow who, who ran the magazine said, I don't have time to do this anymore, but I've put in five years building it up and would you wanna take it over? And I said, sure. He had 400 subscribers. Uh, he was professionally printed, which mine was not. I still was using this clunky mimeograph machine. This is a long, long answer to your short question. Um, so at age 15 in the 10th grade, I became uh, a publisher and an editor of this magazine. And there was a nice woman who taught English in my high school who I didn't have, but she was aware of what I was doing. And one day she stopped me in the hall and said, gave me a piece of paper, said, this is the name of an old, old friend of mine. He's an editor at Signet Books in New York. Call him up after school one day and make an appointment and go and see him. I think the two of you would hit it off. Now, this is uh, Teaneck, New Jersey, which is half hour tops from Manhattan. So it's very easy to go and, and come uh, on a regular basis. Many people did, many people commuted there to work. So I made the call, made the appointment, went to see 
this editor and brought a little stack of my magazines to give him. And uh, as we were breaking the ice, he said, what have you got there? I said, well, this is the magazine that I edit and publish. He said, oh, I love your magazine. How does he already know about it? Maybe the school teacher had shown him copies. Maybe he had read about it somewhere else. He just knew it. And, but he hadn't put it together with my name. And he was looking for somebody to do that book. He said, do you know Stephen Shore's book, Movies on TV? I said, yeah, I use it every day. It was the only, only book of its kind, a big, thick paperback with thousands of capsule movie reviews and very sparse credits. Uh, in those days when local TV stations, especially in a big city like, city like New York, showed movies almost round the clock. So I really knew it. I knew it inside and out. He said, do you like it? I said, I like it as far as it goes. He said, well, what would you do differently? I said, well, he doesn't give you the director's name. Uh, he only looks like two cast people. That's not enough. Uh, you want to know if the movie's in black and white or color. And in the late 60s, that was still an, you know, an issue. Uh, to be, you know, that you want to know. Uh, I'd list the original running time so you'd know if the local TV station is cutting it, which they often were. And I rattled all this off, uh, off the top of my head, because I really knew this book. He said, how'd you like to do it? I said, do what? He said, I'm looking for somebody to do a rival book. You want to do it? I was in the 12th grade, it was spring. I was about to graduate from high school <laughs> and I'm 17 years old and he's offering me a job, uh, a big job. I said, well, yeah, I guess so. He said, okay. He said, so uh, what are you gonna do this fall? I said, well, I've been accepted to NYU. He said. Why are you going to go to college? I just gave you a job. I said, well, yeah, but I'm supposed to go to college. I was, I was a, you know, very um, a straight arrow guy. If it says stand here, I stand there, you know? <laughs> and, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I went to college. I'm glad I went to NYU. Uh, I really enjoyed NYU. And they let me cherry pick film classes. I was a journalism major. I also worked on the daily newspaper. We had a very professional daily newspaper where I had my first experience writing new movie reviews. Um, and, but they let me take film courses, not, not just audit, but let me take them. And uh, so I, and I made lifelong friends there. And, well, this this is this assignment. I mean, uh, you're. I don't remember how many movies you had in the first edition. Eight thousand. Eight thousand movies. So you're tasked with compiling synopses and credit information pre-internet. There's no internet in 1969. Nope. nope. So tell me. Uh, first of all, as I recall. You obviously had friends who helped you with this book because uh, you didn't yeah. write all those capsule reviews. No, uh, no one could. No one person could. Um, 
I hired a guy named Jim Parrish, James Robert Parrish, who had a film research office uh, in Manhattan and, uh, and had one full-time employee. And they had a complete uh, run of Film Daily Yearbook, which was the, uh, the uh, must-have industry trade you know, annual that listed every film that was released that year and who made it, who's in it. And they had other great reference sources too. So we all dove in. How, how, did, how, did you, how did you divide the workload? I mean, obviously you probably, you, you wrote a bunch of obviously capsule reviews, but I had, I had started taking notes several, more than several years earlier as I watched films on, local television or at revival theaters in New York. And um, that was the, the core, the core of the reviews. And Jim wrote a good many of them. And uh, one or two other people that he hired and that I hired, as I say, you couldn't do it yourself. You couldn't. And, and, and my editor said, you're going to have to hire people. Try to have some money left over when you're done. It's a good piece of wisdom, which I almost succeeded in listening to. Because normally an author gets an advance, usually not as big as he'd like from a publisher, especially a first-time writer. But not only are you writing this, but you have people you have to hire. So were they literally taking a piece of the money out of your pocket? No, uh, I was like a book packager. Oh, I see. You know, hiring hiring people uh, as, uh, what do they call that? Work for hire. Work for hire, gotcha, mm -hmm. gotcha. How long, uh, Leonard, how long did it take to uh, compile that first edition? Ah, we had a deadline of like three months or four what? months. <laughs> and that's when, that's when I learned, I learned so much. Uh, painful lessons in many cases. Um, the publisher, which was Signet Books, New American Library, hired a proofreader who was also a film buff, and they hired a fact checker who was also a demon film buff. And so this book wasn't written, it was rewritten and re-rewritten. And that's when I realized, came to learn rather, that um, in a book like this, a reference book, the more eyes who get to check it out before it sees the light of print, uh, the better off you're gonna be. And uh, uh, so if you were, they, if they you... saved my bacon. If you were doing that book today using our modern computers, yep. the idea of alphabetizing film titles is no big deal. Back in 1969, the, if you had 27 movies in a row and then suddenly you found another one that you had to insert into it, I'm sure that the logistics of doing an encyclopedic A to Z must have been incredible. Don't talk to me about logistics, man. <laughs> and, and, you know, and of course, you... You understand, Steve, uh, the 
what we didn't have. Not only no computers, no internet, no home video, no access to movies on demand. Um, uh, the, it, it would seem almost insurmountable. Uh, there, was a, there was an industry source called the BIB source book, Broadcast Information Bureau. It looked like a Manhattan phone directory and they listed every film that was available to television stations, which is something like 15,000 titles. But that included every Tim McCoy Western and, you know, all these, you know, oddities and uh, uh, every uh, two-bit sword and sandal Hercules ripoff from Italy and Spain. Uh, we built our list of 8,000 from scratch. We did not want to take Stephen Scheuer's list from his book, a very successful book, and just copy what you know what he had. We want to 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 generate our own. Sure, sure. And uh, if we hadn't had primary access to primary research uh, material, we couldn't have done that. Well, the other thing I liked about your book, as I recall, was that some of your reviews were very glib. It was not just a straight ahead dry reference book. I remember one in particular. Um, it was a Lon Chaney movie. Uh, it was not a very good one. And uh, I think uh, uh, <laughs> I think the review said something. I, I think it may have been called The Indestructible Man. It was like the, the review said, the whole movie lights up like a Christmas tree, then short circuits, something like that. <laughs> well, we want it to be lively. We want it to be fun. Well, the fun thing is that no human being has seen every movie. And I, in those days, whenever I would see a movie on, like, like you, late night TV, Saturday morning, whatever, it would get checked off. And I would actually go to your book and read what you wrote about it. And I, I, I got to the point, I was a little bit crazy because I would actually clip the little, in the TV guide in those days, they had a little capsule review in the T, not a review, just a reference. I would actually clip that out and paste it to a page if I'd seen it. So, I oh mean, man, you must have been crazy. I, <laughs> who does that? Who does something like that? Who does it? Well, of course, I was the same one recording movies with an audio tape recorder and uh -huh. playing them as I was about to go to sleep. I learned the only technical thing I ever accomplished was learning how to put alligator clips on the speaker wires of uh, our portable, not mine, my family's portable television set and then plug the jack into the tape recorder, the reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. Well, see, you were smart. I didn't have that technology know-how. So if my mother came into the room yelling at me, that would be <laughs> on the recording. And yep. my favorite story is I, I was working at McDonald's in those days, and the ABC six o'clock movie was running Journey to the Center of the Earth in two parts, and I was going to miss part two. I gave my mom instructions on how to record a movie, hit one button, flip it, and literally she does that, and she's looking at the opaque tape, and it doesn't seem to be moving, although the reels are moving, but the tape looks like it's standing still. So she starts having this conversation with herself. And she says, oh, my God, it's not working. My son's going to kill me. My father comes home and explains it is working. And they're yelling at each other back and forth. <laughs>
Oh, God. Well, your book comes out, and I'm sure it was a huge success. Uh, I no, mean, it was not a huge success. Okay. It was a modest success. Oh, okay. And, uh, and, and all I could see when I held the book in my hands and thumb through it was what was wrong with it. Everything stood out like neon. Really? Yeah. I, I you know, not just errors there were plenty of those but poor judgment and uh i i was not happy and and a published author of my acquaintance said to me listen the only people who don't make mistakes are people who don't do anything yeah it's not it's not a phrase these days i've been hearing a lot of uh uh you you uh I think Jerry West, the basketball player, said, uh, you always miss the 10,000 shots you don't take or something like that. <laughs> but well, I, I had to learn to be philosophical. But it was five years before the, uh, the company called and asked if I'd be willing to do an update, a revised edition. And I, I jumped at the chance because I want to fix everything I thought was wrong. Wow. And I wanted to improve the, the writing. I wanted to improve the quality of the reviews. And, um, and I got a chance to do that. And then it was four years before they called again. And uh, I said yes for the same reason. And plus they were paying me. <laughs> and, uh, and then we came out every other year until the mid 80s. When two things happened, I got hired by a TV show called Entertainment Tonight, right, and which made my name and face uh, uh, familiar to lots and lots of people, all of a sudden. And that same decade, the 1980s, home video uh, came to fruition. So. I became the beneficiary of those things. And I got a call from my publisher in New York. I was now an ex-New Yorker here in LA with my wife. And my, my editor called and said, we, want, we just had a sales meeting. And for the next edition, we want to make two changes to the cover, if it's OK with you. I said, what two changes? He said, well, we want to put your name above the title and your picture on the cover. I said, it's okay with me. <laughs> you kind of, you were kind of having done a lot of research into the Twilight Zone. I, you kind of had to face the same situation that Rod Serling faced, that once he became a personality, it was Rod Serling's Twilight Zone, etc. Right. No, absolutely, that, that's great, that's great. I mean, uh, was it a, was it, was it a, Big adjustment moving out to what, what was it? Was it getting the ET job that forced you to move out? Well, nothing. Nothing happened. Uh, cut and dried. I was on the Today Show promoting a book I had written called "The Great Movie Comedians" in uh, late May uh, of 1982, and unbeknownst to me. 3,000 miles away in Los Angeles at Paramount Television, 
uh, a guy in the research department saw the segment I did with Gene Shalit, who longtime critic and uh, uh, popular personality on the Today Show. We had a very loose, lively, funny conversation. And this fellow called the newly installed executive producer of, of a fledgling show called Entertainment Tonight and said, you're looking for a film critic, aren't you? And Jim Bellows, that man said, yes. He said, well, I saw a guy on the Today Show today. I think you ought to check him out. And my phone rang a few days later. And uh, just a day or two after that, I was on a plane out to Hollywood. And uh, they didn't explain to me at all why, what they were interested in having me do. But it turned out they wanted me to do movie reviews, new movie reviews. And I had seen two movies that hadn't opened yet. I was on some of the press mailing lists already in New York. So I was able to, to, to you know, write and, and tape two reviews as samples. That was a Thursday morning at Merv Griffin's studio on Vine Street. I flew home that afternoon, got home in the evening. On Friday, Alice and I got on a plane to Columbus, Ohio, to the Cinevent, a gathering of old movie buffs and collectors. And on Saturday, I'm in the dealer's room looking at stills and posters. And a guy says, hey, you were good on TV last night. I said, what? I said, he said, yeah, I was flipping channels. And there you were. I said, doing what? Reviewing a movie? He said, yeah. They had run one of my audition tapes on Friday night and hadn't told me. And now it's a weekend and I can't, there's nobody I can call to find out what the had, deal is. Had you signed a contract with them at all? I had signed, not a contract, I'd signed an after uh, minimum, you know. Oh, okay. Uh, scale, union scale uh, waiver. I was gonna get paid and, and paid fairly but they could have told me. <laughs> I got home. I got home Monday afternoon. It was a Memorial Day weekend. So it was a holiday Monday. I get home. And in those days, answering machines were reel-to-reel -reel tape. Right. And the tape has had been almost entirely used up from people calling me to congratulate me. Relatives, friends I hadn't talked to in years. The whole world, it seemed, saw that first appearance. And on Tuesday morning, when I called out to LA and said, does this mean I have the job? The guy I was working with said, no. <laughs> <laughs> but we figured we had the review and the film was current, we might as well use it. Oh, then three nights later, they ran the second one again without telling me. And as I always say to people, if that's how they treat you before they hire you, how can you complain that the place is crazy once they do hire you. <laughs> to make a long story much shorter, I commuted for a year and a half, New York to LA, every couple of weeks. Alice and I were fairly, no, we're not newly married. We were married in 1975. So we've been married a little while. 
but we loved our life in New York and our family was there and our friends and uh, we were New Yorkers. We weren't gonna give all that up. So, and ET didn't, didn't blink about paying uh, airfare and uh, hotel rooms and rental cars. Um, and I might still be doing that if, uh, if, my, if my wife hadn't said to me, enough. We're never together. You know, this is not the life we want. Uh, she used to come out every second or third trip with me. Also, we were trying to get pregnant, uh, for which proximity, you know, is helpful. And um, so we finally sublet our apartment and moved out here temporarily. And that was 38 years ago. Now, um, going from being a author and film historian to being a critic, for some people would be a big jump. And there's a lot of responsibility involved. You're, in a way, having the fate of the filmmaker in your own hands in a little way. Was there any trepidation on your part? No, I understood the job. And um, I watched other people do it, like Gene Shalit and, you know, a bunch of Joel Siegel, uh, numerous others. Uh, no, that, that was not an issue for, for, for me. Uh, now, when I look back at those early uh, videos, I think I'm terrible. I don't know why they hired me. But I think what, what put me across was my writing. They liked my writing, and I was able to sell my writing in the way I delivered those reviews. What I didn't do, and it took me a long time to learn how to do, was to really communicate through the lens. Sure, sure. And to well, write for the ear, too. To write to be heard instead of read on a piece of paper. I, I certainly um, have an opinion. I think with me personally, I would have trouble talking about movies I don't like. Feeling that, what good is it going to do for me to say the movie's terrible? Uh, but I guess as a film critic, your responsibility is to tell the viewer if this movie is worth checking out. So I'm sure you've uh, had your share of clunkers over the years. Oh, more than my share. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, very early on, I think one of the first handful of films I reviewed was Grease 2. <laughs> and that was a Paramount picture. And sure enough, the phone rang in our offices and, and one of the associate producers picked it up and had to field a, an angry call from an executive at Paramount in the motion picture division saying, on one of our shows, you have a guy who's, you know, knocking our movie. And bless his heart, the guy said, hey, we hired this guy to, you know, tell us his opinion and we're not going to interfere with what he has to say. And uh, I breathed a sigh of relief. Of course, it helped too that no one liked Greece too. <laughs> it was not as if I was delivering a maverick opinion. 
So over the years, uh, you've re you've reviewed thousands of movies. Have you ever had any uh, calls like that? Again, I'm sure a few people uh, disagree with you, but have you ever had those awful calls or not? There have been just a couple of unpleasant. Well, <laughs> one of my fellow uh, reporters on the show, still a good friend, Jeannie Wolf, was uh, covering an opening or premiere and Sylvester Stallone was there and I had reviewed um, Rhinestone, an unfortunate film he made with Dolly Parton and um, not a good movie, but I decided I wasn't going to take cheap shots. I was, I was going to, I, I like both of them and I didn't lay the blame at their feet. And about a week after that aired, Jeannie was covering some premiere and Stallone was there and she knew him and he knew her. And she said, Sly, would you come over and say a few words for entertainment tonight? He said, I'd like to Jeannie, but I, I, I can't, I'd be a hypocrite if I did. Uh, I don't mind constructive criticism, but that man on your show is vicious. He was vicious. So that's when I learned that if you don't like a film, it doesn't matter how you choose to express it. You didn't like the movie and they're not happy about that. Famously, I gave a bad review to Gremlins, uh, a film made by one of the very few filmmakers I actually knew, Joe Dante. Uh, in fact, I met Joe at Jim Paris's office uh, in Manhattan. Joe was, a, was from Jersey and uh, was writing great capsule reviews for Calvin Beck's Castle of Frankenstein magazine. And um, so we weren't close buddies, but we, we, we liked each other and we knew each other. And he made this film called Gremlins for Steven Spielberg. And I didn't care for it. I thought it was kind of mean spirited. And uh, I really wrestled with how I was gonna review this movie. If, if I'd been on a newspaper staff, I would have recused myself <laughs> and given that assignment to you know, an, another critic on the staff. At ET, I was it. And, uh, and, I realized, and then I said, well, maybe I, have, maybe I should go easy on this film. I said, no, people will know that I'm not really being honest. So uh, I said, I said, I said how I felt and it caused a rift between me and Joe. And I understand that. I understood it then. I understand it today. No one likes to be criticized. Do you? I don't. No. I've had plenty of lousy reviews of my books and I'm always, you know, uh, miffed by that. It's never pleasant. And, um, but we eventually time heals, you know, many wounds. And um, a couple of years went by and his producing partner, Mike Fennell, called me one day and said, well, we're going to do Gremlins 2. And uh, we want to have the Gremlins invade a TV network and, you know, attack the host of various shows. And we want one of them to be a movie review show. And we'd like you to be the host. And I said, well, I guess I owe you that much. So there I was, there I found myself on 
a soundstage at Warner Brothers uh, being directed by Joe holding a cassette, a VHS cassette of the original Gremlins. And he says to me, just use your own words. <laughs> so I was directed by Joe to give a bad review again to his, to his movie until the Gremlins came and threw strips of 35 millimeter film around my, my neck and yanked me backwards and pummeled me to death. So let me ask you a question. Um, I always say that there's always a good movie to see. And that Hollywood has been churning out movies for a hundred years and there's always something to see. But since you have studied the business for so long, do you think movies today are as well made as they were in, in back in the day? And when I say well made, I don't mean the technical side, but in the choice of subjects and the entertainment value. Because one of the points I seem to be saying a lot lately is movies today are much darker than in previous decades. It just seems that there's always a very dark quality and in terms of the drama and their comedy has almost disappeared. What's your opinion on that, Leonard? I agree with most of what you're saying. Um, I think if, if, if I had to put it into one, to one statement, I would say the craft of storytelling has eroded terribly. Uh, and I think it may, it may be because at one point um, there was so much fiction being published in this country. Uh, magazines, uh, books, paperback books, uh, episodic television. You, you know, there was so much storytelling. There was so much demand for storytelling that people learned that craft and then passed it on to, you know, the next generation who learned that craft, that skill. And uh, after the rupture of the late 60s, early 70s, the Easy, easy Rider era, you know, when uh, studio said, well, if that's what they, if that's what those kids want to see, let's, uh, <laughs> why are we paying these, these writers so much money? Let's just, give, you know, filmmakers a, a camera and a small crew and let them go out and make a movie. Uh, there was a disruption of that continuity that had existed for a long, long time. And, and that I think is, is, is a chief culprit for, for a lot of the junk we see. And, and they, they go on so long. They don't know how to tell a story with a beginning, middle and an end. I have five endings. Oh, I mean, I mean, I having studied the James Bond movies all these years to think that a James Bond movie is almost three hours long is insane. I mean, uh, yep. the Marvel movies always seem to end 20 minutes too long. But my biggest concern, and since I have been writing comedy of late, trying to get some comedies made, is that the state of comedy seems to have been reduced to a very low ebb that there, if you see a comedy in the studio system, it's generally raunchy. 
It's very noisy. And the charm of comedies, uh, that's why for me, a movie like School of Rock stands out. You know, well, yes, for good reason. For good reason, because there's a charm about it. Jack Black was very charming and fun. Um, I'm hopeful that we can turn it around, but it seems to me that another thing I say to people is that, you know, we all respect the Marvel movies because they keep the turnstiles moving in these movie theaters, thank God, but they also absorb most of the money in the business. I mean, it's not like they're cranking out $20 million movies. These Marvel movies cost $200 million to make, and they, they soak up most of the money around. So it's, it's, it's kind of uh, depressing. <clears throat> At one point in the early to mid 80s, when I was reviewing for ET and still commuting uh, coast to coast, Alice and I went to see several movies in a row in New York. I remember one of them being uh, Romancing the Stone, and which people were just going crazy over. I said, it isn't all that good, is it? Am I, am, am I, am I, not, am I missing something here? And it was, I started to feel like maybe I was out of touch. You know, maybe I was losing my, my bearings in the midst of seeing too many, too many mediocre movies in a row. And then we went to uh, our neighborhood, the Revival Theater was the Regency on Broadway and 67th Street. We went and to see either an old Ford or Capra movie. And uh, came and I said, nope, it's not me. I'm okay. <laughs> the movies really are mediocre. <laughs> well, you know. I felt redeemed. I felt I could still recognize a great movie when I saw it. No, that's very, very true. Well, we have been speaking very animatedly with Leonard Malton, and we haven't even discussed animation. We'll have to do it on, on another show because we know how much you love animation. Uh, I should mention some of Leonard's books. I, I, his latest book is an autobiography called Starstruck, My Unlikely Road to Hollywood, uh, which uh, is, is out there now for those who want to get deeply into Malton. And uh, his movie guide was published for many years. Uh, it may have been the longest running movie guide in, in, in book history. Uh, I remember fondly of Mice and Magic, a history of American animated cartoons. He also has a book called Leonard Maltin's 151 Best Movies You've Never Seen. How did you, by the way, come up with the number 151? Well, that was my editor's idea. Originally, it was going to be 101. And then he said, oh, the book is running a little short. Add 50 more movies. God, we love editors. Um, I also should mention that with his daughter, Jessie, Leonard has a wonderful podcast called Malton on Movies. And as I was telling him earlier, I, was, I sat down and listened to his interview with Woody Allen, which was a terrific get for you, because Woody does not speak to many people. Uh, but that's great. And then he's continuing to uh, promote and, and trump, trumpets classic movies. Um, Leonard, uh, I, I, I love your work and your support and love of film. And I hope you continue to do it for many years. I hope I am given the ability to do it for many years because I still love it, as I know you do, just as much as we ever did. 
Thank you, Leonard. On behalf of our producer, Ben Shrewsbury, and the Lock 22 Network, you've been listening to Saturday Night the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Please tune in next week and tell your friends about Saturday, Steve Rubin's Saturday Night the Movies. Thank you again, Leonard. <laughs>